be seated. On one of my fly fishing trips up to the Little Red River, uh, just in Heber Springs, as a great morning, I accessed the, the river from a, a walk-in access point and walked up stream a fair piece and was just fishing away having a great time. Unbeknownst to me, the Corps of Engineers at Gurus Ferry Dam decided that they were going to open the gates and let a whole bunch of water out, not uncommon on the Little Red River. And I was uh, quite a ways downstream from the dam, so I didn't hear the horn go off, but I expected at some point the water would rise. But I was fishing, having a great time. All of a sudden, I realized that the water had risen quite a bit and the current was increasing significantly. And I was quite a ways from the access point, and so I had to fight and struggle and navigate my way on slippery rocks through an increasing current where I could get to a place of safety. Obviously, I got to a place of safety because I'm here today. I was not swept downstream, waders full of water, which, by the way, I do not advise either fly fishing or duck hunting to get your waders full of water. Now, you may not face a rising tide and an increasing current in a river like I do from time to time. But everyone here today is facing today, tomorrow, and every day an increasing and very strong current of worldliness. And we have to fight and struggle and navigate through that current every day but there is a place of safety not out of the river but in the midst of the current of worldliness and so today we're following Christian and his newfound friend faithful as they enter what is the epitome of worldliness, a town in Bunyan's story, The Pilgrim's Progress, called Vanity Fair. And Christian and his new colleague, Faithful, had to pass through it. And we have to pass through the world in order to get to the celestial city. And so today, we'll be looking at a number of things dealing with worldliness and how we can live in the world without being worldly. Now before we even get to the three points that's on the sermon outline, I want to look at four biblical principles about the believer in the world. So open your Bibles. First one is John chapter 18 verse 36. Four principles about believers living in the world. John 18, 36, Jesus said, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. Jesus' kingdom is not from this world. It is from another world. It's a heavenly kingdom. Secondly, believers are to remain in the world. Now look at John 17, 15 through 18. Jesus' high priestly prayer as he's praying 
to God the Father, he says, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. Thirdly, Christians must not love the world. Now turn to 1 John 2.15. This is the first verse that was part of the assurance of pardon, but I didn't read it in the assurance of pardon because I want to read it now. 1 John 2.15. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. That stings a bit, doesn't it? How much do we struggle with loving the things of the world? And if we do, the love of the Father, we're living as though the love of the Father is not in us. And then fourthly, that the believer, the church, is to have an effect, is to influence the world. Very familiar passage at the, just after the Beatitudes, Matthew 5, 13 through 16. So turn there, if you will. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good deeds, your good works, and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So these are four principles about believers being in the world. Jesus' kingdom is not of this world. Believers are to remain in the world. We must not love the world. We are placed here to affect the world. So in light of these principles, preparation, confrontation, and the right expectations are necessary for believers to live in the world without being worldly. And you'll find these three points, preparation, confrontation, and expectations on page five there in your sermon outline. Let me pray for us. Father, this is a very important principle in your word. Believers are in the world. We're sent into this world by Jesus himself. And help us to see today how we might be prepared, how we need to see that we have to confront, not conform to this world and how we might have the right expectations to be faithful, like Christian and faithful in Bunyan's story, as we live in this world without being worldly. And we pray and ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So after uh, Christian leaves the valley of the shadow of death, he joins up with Faithful, who is a fellow pilgrim that had also been on this uh, journey, that as you remember, Christian heard his voice, though he could not see him, so he meets him 
And they begin discussing how their experiences are a little different as they left the, the cross and now as they're journeying to the celestial city. And then they come across this fellow by the name of Talkative. And Talkative's religion is in word only. In other words, he talks a good game about the Christian life, but he is unchanged. His life does not conform to the kingdom of Jesus. He conforms to worldliness. And so he's a hypocrite. And then, most importantly, Christian and faithful encounter someone they've already met, evangelist. And evangelist does two things in, in this story. He warns them about what lies ahead in Vanity Fair, the town that is before them, but he also advises them how to be prepared to pass through Vanity Fair and remain faithful to Christ Jesus. So we are to be prepared to live in this world so that we do not become worldly ourselves. And I want to list three ways. There are more. These are my three. First, Matthew 6, So we're going to look at a lot of scripture today. Just have your Bibles, your iPhones, your iPads out. Get your fingers ready. Turn to Matthew 6, Another very familiar passage. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. You see, the way we prepare to live in the world without being worldly is that we have the kingdom of God as our priority and our focus all the time. It's so easy for us to get caught up in worldliness. And so we must keep the kingdom of God before us. Now, secondly, James chapter 1, verses 14 through 15. James 1, 14 through 15. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. The devil cannot make us sin, right? But he can sure tempt us and he can sure uh, speak those little suggestions um, as if he was were sitting on our shoulder into our minds but he can't make us sin but the problem is deep down in our own hearts we have sinful desires and if we're not careful when we are tempted out of our heart we go and we embrace that temptation and that's what gives birth to sin. So when we sin, we sin. And no one makes us sin. And so we must guard, we must prepare to live in this world without being worldly by guarding our hearts. Don't be fooled that you're such a good upstanding person and you would never do that sin. Please don't be fooled by that. Because your heart, my heart, has the capacity to sin in just about any manner. And we must guard our hearts. And we must be aware of the particular sinful desires that are traps for us. That's how you prepare to live in this world without being 
worldly. And thirdly, 1 Corinthians 15, 58, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. We need to be tenacious. We need to be steadfast. We need to be like a dog on a bong to follow Jesus each and every day. When we get up in the morning, we need to get up fully intending to love Jesus every minute of every day and to be about the work that he's called us to. We need to be stout-hearted and choose to follow Jesus. I think that's what Paul is saying here in 1 Corinthians 15. Don't settle for mediocrity. Storm the day by living by faith and walking in obedience. Well, why must we be prepared for Vanity Fair? Believers, you and me, are confronted every day by worldliness as we seek to live in this world without being worldly. Well, evangelists give some sobering news to Christian and faithful. This is what he says to them. This is before they even get to Vanity Fair. This is some of the advice that evangelist gives to Christian and faithful. Actually, it's a warning. He said, in that town, you will be faced with hardened enemies who will exert pressure on you and you will, and will ultimately seek to kill you. Do you see what Bunyan is doing there? He is saying, listen, when you get to Vanity Fair, it is going to be an all-out fight as you confront worldliness in that place that epitomizes worldliness. And Bunyan describes Vanity Fair in his story, and the same description could be used to describe our culture today. First, it is a fair. Think of our state fair. I'm not saying the fried donuts and the butter on a stick fried in lard is sin. But um, is that... What's coming? They always have a new thing that's fried and really unhealthy for you at the state fair. Does anyone know what this year's new thing is? Well, wait for it. It'll be there. Just think of Vanity Fair. But it's a fair that's, that lasts all year long. It's a fair that lasts every day. It's a fair that lasts year after year. It is a fair that lasts the lifespan of every single person that has ever lived. Secondly, it is the oldest fair. In fact, this fair began in Genesis chapter 3 at the fall of man. This fair was started by none other but Satan himself. This fair was built right where every single pilgrim going to the celestial city must pass right through the middle of it. That is the old and ancient Vanity Fair. And at this fair, thirdly, it is a marketplace where, you, yes, you can buy butter on a stick, fried in lard, but you can buy any and every vanity. But the problem is that which you buy will not satisfy. That which you buy is perishable. That which you buy has no real and lasting value. Remember, Brandon read from Ecclesiastes chapter 1, vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. 
And so all the promises, all the things that Vanity Fair has for you to buy is what? Vanity. And fourthly, this is a lustful fair. It is a fair where you can go and have every single sinful desire met. Hey, the good news is I have good news for you as you think about going to the lustful fair. What happens in Vanity Fair stays in Vanity Fair. So where is Vanity Fair today? Is it Las Vegas? Is it Bourbon Street? Is it Amsterdam? Is it what we watch on TV or what we do or are exposed to on the internet? Wait, whoa, could Vanity Fair be Little Rock, Arkansas? Vanity Fair is anywhere and everywhere Christians live. Remember, it's the oldest fair established by the ancient foe of the kingdom of Christ, placed strategically so every single believer will have to pass right through the middle of it. Vanity Fair is upon us today. We're in the midst of it. And it's easy to get caught up in worldliness, isn't it? One of Paul's colleagues, the Apostle Paul's colleagues, Demas, got caught up in worldliness. And we read about it in 2 Timothy 4.10. For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. It's easy not to desert the Apostle Paul, but to desert and abandon Jesus as we get caught up in worldliness and fall in love with it. And when a person gets caught up in worldliness, as we read in, at the very beginning in, that, in one of the principles of believers being in the world, we place ourselves in peril, 1 John 2.15, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. And that is a perilous place to be, to be living as a believer but you're in love with the world and you're living as if the love of the Father is not in you. That never has a good end, by the way. And the problem of worldliness can be brought down to this one verse of Scripture, Matthew chapter 6 and verse 24. No one can serve two masters, said Jesus, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. You cannot serve God and worldliness. David Wells, one of, I think, one of the great theologians of our day, defines worldliness in one of the best ways, in my judgment, and this is how he defines worldliness. Everything in a culture that makes sin look 
normal, and righteousness look odd. In our day, same-sex marriage is looking more and more normal. Traditional marriage looking more and more odd. Abortion looking more and more normal. Pro-life looking more and more odd. Irreligion having nothing to do with the church, looking more and more normal, vibrant, true Christianity, looking more and more odd. Well, if Wells's definition is correct, then true Christians must be, now get this, must be non-conformist. You know, John Bunyan as a pastor was a non-conformist, right? He did not conform to the Church of England. And we must be non-conformists, not in that sense, but in the sense given in Scripture. We should look, talk, and act differently than the world. We should have different interests and priorities than those in the world. Christian and faithful in Bunyan's story were ridiculed because they dressed differently, they talked differently, they acted differently. They were not interested in all of the vanities for sale and vanity fair. They were interested in godly things and they were ridiculed for it. They were different and so must we be different. But being different than the world is by design. And here it is in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 through 2, where Paul says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. We are to be different as we live in this world without being worldly because it is the way God has ordered it. Now, we must, each one of us must ask ourselves this question. Am I conforming to worldliness or am I confronting it as a disciple of Jesus Christ? I think we need to do some soul searching about that question. A true believer who is living in this world without being worldly must be a nonconformist not conforming to the patterns of worldliness, but being transformed by the powerful gospel of Jesus Christ. We are to live sacrificial and devoted lives to Jesus. Well, when we confront culture, we don't conform to it, we confront it, we need to have the right expectations of what the outcomes are going to be. And there are many outcomes to living in this world without being worldly. I just simply want to mention two, the first one briefly, the second one just a little 
bit more. And the first outcome is this. When we live in this world without being worldly, when we confront worldliness and conform to godliness, we will suffer. It is a given. Evangelists gave Christian and faithful more sobering news when he said, but be faithful even in your death and the king will give you a crown of life. You see, as they were anticipating going to Vanity Fair, they had already been warned, you may die, you may lose your life, you may suffer to that extent in Vanity Fair. And they did suffer. Christian escaped, but faithful was martyred. Jesus tells us that a true disciple must take up his cross and follow him. That means live a life of suffering. And then we read that we suffer in, now we suffer for many reasons. Some, one might be our own foolishness. <laughs> but part of the reasons that we suffer is that the world hates Christ and the world hates Christ's disciples. Have you figured that out yet? And I think the hatred towards Christians is increasing, not decreasing. But it's nothing new. In every generation, there's increasing hatred towards the church. From Genesis 3 on until Christ comes again. We, re we read about that in John 17, 14. But here is the blessed news for you and me. That as we live in this world without being worldly and suffer because of it, this is the promise that we're given. At the end of the Beatitudes, in Matthew 5, 10 through 12, we read this. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. One of the outcomes of living in this world without being worldly, and one of the outcomes we should expect, is that we will suffer. We will suffer persecution. But yet in that, we are to rejoice because it is blessing for those who love the Lord Jesus Christ. But secondly, when we live in this world without being worldly, we should expect to be safe. Now, you know, when I was in that, that river wading about and the water was rising and the current was increasing, I had to get out to be safe. But what Scripture tells us, the Christian cannot get out of this world. Jesus has sent us into it. But there is a place of safety in the raging river of worldliness that we are fighting against every single day. 
Bunyan beautifully represents this, this reality with these words. The prince of princes himself, Jesus, when he went through this town to his own country, and that upon a fair day too. Now what Bunyan means by that is that Jesus has already passed through Vanity Fair when the fair was at its high pitch. It was going. And I want us to think about something. Where do we see an example of Jesus passing through Vanity Fair? Well, I'll tell you. It's at the very beginning of his, of his ministry, when he's after John's baptism there in the Jordan River, what does Jesus do? Having fasted for 40 days, he goes out into the wilderness, and there he is tempted by Satan, the one who established the fair. And I would suggest to you that that wilderness experience of Jesus is Jesus being in the midst of worldliness, in the midst of this fair where he was tempted to forsake all for provisions, for kingdoms, for power. He was, in effect, to buy these vanities from Satan, but he didn't. He remained faithful and true, and he successfully navigated that aspect of the fair, but he lived in the midst of Vanity Fair his entire life, even at his death and resurrection. Now, what is the point of all this? And here's the point Jesus lived in this world without being worldly, he is the perfect one who has done that. He has remained faithful and he has overcome Vanity Fair. And he's overcome Vanity Fair for us. And here's the point I want to make. We are safe in the midst of the current of worldliness. Because we have a great high priest who has experienced everything. And I would suggest even more than we have living in and through Vanity Fair. He has been tempted like we have even more than we have. He knows, he understands what it's like to get up every day, to wade out into that river and just be struggling against the current of worldliness. He knows what that is like because he did it. He passed through Vanity Fair. We have a great high priest who understands what it means to be tempted, to be tempted to buy a vanity and forsake the one true God. He knows what that is like. Because he lived in Vanity Fair without being worldly. He was a nonconformist. The chief nonconformist. And listen to these words. Turn with me to Hebrews 4, 14 through 16. Because this great high priest has already passed through Vanity Fair, who understands exactly what we are going through, even temptation. 
we're able to safely and boldly and confidently go to him for mercy, for forgiveness, and for help. You know, in the midst of the raging current of worldliness, we are needy people. And the great high priest not only understands what it's like to be in that current of worldliness, but he has the grace that we need so to enable us to safely navigate that current. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who is in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. I want you to think of it like this. When you are absolutely feeling like the current of worldliness is going to sweep you away into oblivion, you remember Jesus has been there and he is saying, come to me. I have everything you need to stand fast and firm in that current and not be overcome by it, but overcome it. Can that be? Can it be that that God's grace is so sufficient that even when we fail, His mercy comes and we're forgiven. But His grace comes and there's power that we overcome it. We are safe in the raging waters because Jesus has overcome the world for us. Listen to John 16, 33. I have said these things to you that in me you have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But take heart. I have overcome the world. In the midst of the raging water and the ever increasing current. Feeling like we're going to be swept away. We have a great high priest who understands and he says come to me. I will forgive you. I will show you mercy. I will empower you with my grace and you will overcome because I have overcome the world. And in the midst of it all you will have peace. In the strongest current. That's what Jesus does. For his people, we should not fear worldliness because we serve the one who's overcome it and who empowers us to stand firm. We are safe in the raging river of worldliness as we live by faith and follow the one who has already gone through vanity fear. As we follow in his footsteps, we find peace. John Newton's hymn really captures uh, this idea of finding safety not out of the world, but in the midst of the fight of worldliness. When Satan assails us to stop up our path and courage all fails us, we triumph by faith. He cannot take from us, though oft, he has tried this heart-cheering promise. You know what the promise is? The Lord will provide. No strength of our own and no goodness we claim. Yet since we have known of the Savior's great name, in this our strong tower for safety we hide. 
The Lord is our power. The Lord will provide. Take heart, Jesus says. I have overcome vanity fair for you. And I am your strong tower and power and hiding place. Flee to me and find peace in the current of worldliness. Let us pray. God, our Father, we do ask you to work powerfully in our hearts and minds in light of these scriptures that we have read. Lord, that in the midst of troubles assailing us and worldliness feeling like it may consume us, that we would know of the safe place right in the midst of the current of worldliness, which is Jesus, that we might flee to him, our power and our high tower, our hiding place, and find rest and peace. That as we follow him by faith, we will be overcomers of this world in him. And we pray and ask this in his name. Amen.